We're going to do things a little bit differently uh, this morning. We've got a little bit of a different setup for uh, the way we're going to do the message. So Pastor Matt and, uh, and Stephanie are on vacation this week. So uh, they've left it to uh, myself, Earl, Tom, and Jesse to bring the message this morning. Uh, so we're going to each tackle a different, different topic today for just a few minutes and weave um, some praise and worship into the midst of that. So uh, sort of trying something a little different today. So uh, bear with us and, uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and open God's word together. So I'm going to start us off by talking about faith. Um, uh, let's open our, our, our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So what is faith? This verse says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is knowing something that can't be known. It's complete trust. It's following God's will even when it's uncomfortable or frightening. When, uh, when I was in college, I took about a year off of work, or off to work in a small church near Baltimore, Maryland. I knew I was being called to volunteer and serve in this church. Um, so I served there as a worship leader and as a youth pastor in training. Uh, but mostly I ended up helping with demolition and construction. They were in the process of moving to a new building. They had just acquired what used to be a real estate office and they were turning that into a church. So I worked sometimes 15 hour days, which sometimes included worship practice or a weekly youth service, but often was a lot of manual labor. Um, it was a great opportunity to get in halfway decent shape too. I was a step above homeless half the time. I was couch hopping and doing odd jobs in exchange for room and board or gas money, the occasional cheeseburger. Uh, some days I wasn't 100% sure where lunch or dinner was gonna come from, but it always came. I always had enough, even enough to share with others who had even less from time to time. It was a powerful way to see the way God provided for me every time, that he blessed willingness to serve and seeking his will over my own. I wish I could tell you that I've always walked in that kind of unwavering faith, but um, obviously I'm a human being too, and that's easier said than done. Obviously, I eventually had to part ways with that church, but I'm grateful to this day for the many lessons that I learned during that season, especially how God cares for his people, how he is faithful to provide, how worthy of our faith and trust he truly is. A faith is not just a personal thing, it's, it's essential to salvation. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Thank the Lord, I can't earn my salvation. If it were up to me, I'd be done for. I would absolutely fail. But it's not. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. We are gifted salvation by the grace given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not any good deed that we do, but the ultimate sacrifice Jesus paid in our place 
on the cross. It's his victory over death that sets us free from our sin and redeems us to him. You've heard it sung, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And that's a beautiful lyric. In fact, we're going to be singing it a few songs uh, from now. Uh, It helps us to grasp just how deep his grace is for us, how vast enough it is to wash away even our worst sins. But that said, I think maybe we could also see grace as the boat in this analogy. Faith, the sea route or the current pulling us along, the wind pushing our sails. If you like, if you're not into naval analogies, uh, grace is the car that we're in and faith is the road that, that it was designed to drive on. In either case, the destination is heaven and thank God in neither case am I in the driver's seat. I'm not steering, that's him. Faith isn't something that we can earn. It's not something that we're necessarily even born with, per se. It's something that's given to us, something that God gives to us. It's a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, I don't feel like I have faith. How can I have it? How can I get it? Ask. It's that simple. Did you catch that last part of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8? It's the gift of God. And God does not withhold good gifts from his children. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And that said, we've got to remember, God's not a genie and faith is not a magic lamp. There are many who might like to claim that if you're not in perfect health or unimaginably rich, it must be because you lack faith. You just don't have enough faith. That's not how faith works. Yes, God can and often does heal the sick in miraculous ways, and we praise him for that. Yes, God can and often does bless us with resources far beyond our need. Any of us living in this country, uh, even those with relatively speaking little compared to a lot of the other people in this country, are still unimaginably wealthy compared to much of the rest of the world. We have much to be grateful for, and he's blessed us richly. Yes, these miracles are often, can be in direct response to the faith of the one asking, but sometimes things aren't going our way because God means to stretch us, or he uses those instances as an opportunity to help us grow, to build our faith, to help remind us that we need to rely on him. Sometimes our prayers are answered with a no, because not because we lack faith that he can provide, but because what we're asking for or, or our motives for asking are not aligned with his will. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. 1 John 3, verse 22 says that we 
receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. What is his command? Verse 23 says, now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. Love God, love your neighbor. If you're aligned with that, if you're aligned with his will, if you're asking for the things that he wants for you, he's going to say yes. We exercise our faith not by bending God to our will, but by aligning our own will with his. Now, sometimes tragedy strikes, and we may wonder why. Why was this allowed to happen? In such times, we can rest in the peace that comes from trusting in him, from knowing God is on the throne, that he's in control, and that we don't have to be. He knows what he's doing. Who knew this truth better than Jesus Christ himself? What better example do we have? Let's look to him in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 kind of expand on that a little bit. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So while in the face of a painful death for a crime he did not commit, he allowed himself to be sacrificed in our place, that our sins would be forgiven, and that he rose in victory over death on the third day. Jesus submits himself to the Father's will, and he obeys. He acts accordingly. He works out that faith that he has in the Father and his Father's plans. Now, again, we can't work our way into heaven. We can't earn it. We're not in the driver's seat. But faith results in action. Work is the inevitable response to faith. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. So when we pray, let us ask for faith. Let us ask for his will, knowing that he won't ask us to do something that contradicts his word in Scripture. Let us ask that he would align our heart with his own and away from our own selfishness. Let us ask for courage and strength to walk in that will and do what he calls us to do, even if it's uncomfortable or frightening or even dangerous. He laid down his life for us, that we might be free. So let's ask for the strength to follow him because, again, faith is not bending God to our will, but aligning our own will with his. The word I'm going to talk to you about is the word hope. 
We all know in the English language what the meaning of the word hope is. It's often used kind of as a wish. And they all have different degrees of percentages that it may work or it may not work. We may say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or we may say, I hope I get the job I applied for. But there's different degrees. This, one of these, this one that I'm going to bring up this year and maybe this next year was a higher likelihood of coming through. I hope the Buffalo Bills win this week. On the other end of the coin, there are some things that don't, don't necessarily um, come through when we're saying we hope for something. How about, I'm going to the Sabres game and I hope they win this week. Or, this, this one I've heard before, I hope I win the lottery and become a millionaire. Th those are things that kinda, you know, the chances aren't very good that you are gonna have that come true. But the Bible says a lot about hope but the biblical definition of hope is far different than the English definition. The Bible's meaning of the word hope usually has its foundation in our faith in God. The Bible's hope is the confident ex expectation of what God has promised and its strength is in his faithfulness. I'll read that again. The definition from the Bible is, Bible's hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised and its strength is in his faithfulness. Jeremiah 29:11 says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you your hope and a future." Hebrews 11:1 1 says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." C.S. Lewis said this about hope. He says, "A Christian's hope isn't an escape or wishful thinking, but something that a Christian is meant to do." David Jeremiah recently wrote a book about hope. He titled his book, Hope, Living Fearlessly in a Scary World. He says this about hope. There is an unshakable hope, a rock-solid foundation that will never fail us. Who is this rock-solid foundation that will never fail us? Let's think about that, and we'll come back to it in a few minutes. In Hebrews, the word hope is used five times. John Piper says this about the hope in Hebrews. He says, the clearest usage of these five in Hebrews is Hebrews 6.18, where it says, seize the hope that, lays, that is laid before us. 6.18 says, seize the hope that's laid before us. He says, this is clearly not a subjective experience, but an objective future reality, namely an anchor that we can seize. This seizing is a subjective experience of hoping for, but the word hope does not refer that in this situation. He says, note that the, the surety and firmness of this hope is stressed. When a thing is sure, it, it can still be a hope if it's in the future and it's desirable. John Piper continues by saying this, I think this shows that, at least here, the word hope differs in its meaning from the way we use it. If we say, your hope is to win the game, now seize that hope. We imply uncertainty. Winning is only a hope. It's not a sure thing. But Hebrews says our hope is an anchor that is both secure and firm. Therefore, the word hope in Hebrews 6.18 refers to an objective future reality 
it is desirable and sure for all who sees it. What does John Piper mean when he says, it's sure for all who sees it? Well, let's put this together with the earlier question that we were talking about. The first one was from David Jeremiah, and we, I think we all know the answer to that. Who is the rock-solid foundation that will never fail us? Obviously, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. The second question, which is a little bit harder to explain, is, he says, sure for all who sees it. I believe this refers to all of us that call upon the name of the Lord and accept him into our heart as our Savior. We will be the ones that can seize the hope from the Bible. There are many of us here in the, in the, or some of us that are here in the church and some of us watching online that may have not accepted Jesus in your heart and you can't realize the real hope from the Bible. Maybe today's the day. You may have been kicking in the tires for a while and maybe today you decide to follow after Jesus. There's no magical formula or prayer that will get you to heaven. You simply talk to Jesus Thank him for dying on the cross for our sins and tell him that you'll follow him no matter where you go. We mentioned earlier about hope and the promises of God. They come with this seizing. I leave you with a few of these promises. There are many in the Bible, but I'll leave you with a few of them. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Proverbs 23:18 says, Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. And finally, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I declare to everyone here today, there is an unshakable hope, a rock-solid foundation that will never fail us. His name is Jesus. Hope is desirable and sure for all who sees it. Let's seize this hope. Love. Let's talk about it. There's songs written about it, books written about it. There are even holidays that are fashioned around it. It's probably the most widely used word we probably know. Sometimes it's even underused and sometimes it's loosely used. If I asked you to define the word love, what would you tell me? There's so many different ways to express it. It's a verb, an adverb, a noun. But according to Merriam-Webster's definition of love, it's described as a strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties, paternal love for a child, attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers. After all these years, they're still very much in love. Affection is based on admiration, benevolence, or common interest, a love for one's old schoolmates. The Greek break the definition down to three terms to define love. Agape, which is the highest and deepest form of love. It is unconditional. Eros is a more sexual and romantic term used for love. And phileo love is a friendship based on love and kinship. One online source published an approximate list of the number of times love appears in different popular translations of the Bible. ESV, it's 684 times. King James Version is 442 times. 
New American Standard Bible, 479 times. The New Living Translation is 759 times, and the New International Version, 686. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, and this is probably one of the most popular ones for love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Carrying true biblical love means you don't disappear at the sight of a person's imperfections. You must love unconditionally. Unconditional love is a choice, not a feeling. Love is caring tenderly about another the way you would care for yourself. Love is seeking to protect someone's heart and to see the gold even when it's hard. Sometimes we will have those beautiful feelings and relationships, but other times we must decide that the person we love is worth standing beside, through thick and thin. Love is a decision to give that person good and not repay them with evil. No revenge, pettiness, passive-aggressive remarks are allowed. According to John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Pray with me, would you please? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and thank you for the blessings you continue to give us. I would ask you, dear Father, to send your Holy Spirit to enter all of us and give us not only the desire to love one another, but to give us the same loving heart that your Holy Son Jesus showed us to so many over 2,000 years ago. A love so powerful that we celebrate it all these years later. Give us the strength to look past the faults of those who do not believe you, in you and your Son, Jesus Christ, who you sent to die for our sins. Let us remember them in prayer each and every day. It is hard to love those, Lord, that wrong us each and every day, but it is our commandment. You tell us that all things are possible through prayer, so with prayers we ask you to guide us in our walk of faith so that we can spend eternity in the glow of your unconditional love for us. We ask this in your son's holy name, Jesus Christ. Bear with me today because my allergies decided that this week when I was supposed to be in front of people talking that they would flare up. So I might uh, turn my head to cough or uh, such things. I don't have corona. It's all good. I got tested. So bad news is they're naming a disease after me. No. But anyway, <laughs> what if I told you that this week was going to be the worst week ever? It's just one of those weeks, you know. Starts off, you know, your kids spill grape juice on the floor, brand new carpet. If you don't have kids, maybe you spill grape juice on the carpet. I don't know. You know, you show up late to work. You now you find out later when you get out of work, your car needs repairs because it broke down sometime in between when you started work and when you got back. Yeah. You get home, your basement's flooded. You got a foot and a half of water down there. Not just water, but sewage too, just to put you in the mood. Anyone feel uncomfortable yet? Does, does this sound like anyone's week? Oh, and uh, later on you find out that someone got credit at work for something that you did. Michael Bolton and Nickelback released a new album. It's just, it's bad news. It's a bad week. It's a bad week. It does, doesn't it? So what if I told you also that at the end of this week, 
you're going to win the lottery. Million dollars a week for life. Huh. Might change the way you see some of those events that happen during the week. You know, your basement can flood all you want. You don't care. Just buy a new house. Whatever. A kid spills grape juice on the floor. Whatever. Buy a new floor. You get a million dollars a week for life. Who cares? It doesn't matter. So true joy, I feel, kind of works in a similar kind of way. What is joy exactly? Can you mix it with almonds and make a candy bar? No, you can't. Can you wash your dishes with it? Well, if you're weird, no one uses joy anymore to wash dishes. Palm olive. Come on, people. It's not a feeling, you know. Joy isn't something temporary that just kind of comes and goes and ebbs and flows and so forth. You know, you don't say, I feel joy. You say, no, I feel joy full. You're full of joy. You know, uh, around November, you don't say, I feel thank. You say, I feel thankful. You know, when you wake up Monday morning and you're full of awe of the new week, you don't say, I feel awe. You say, I feel awe. Awful, right? Wait, yeah, I pulled a fast one on you. So feelings are temporary, you know. Science has actually did studies on people who did win the lottery, and they found that for six months, they were pretty happy, right, and pretty high. But then after six months, they're right back to where they started as far as how happy they reported being. You know, and interestingly enough, also, they also studied people who became paraplegics, you know, lost the use of their legs or whatnot, and they found that they were pretty depressed for about six months. And then right after that, they were right back to where they are. So happiness, sadness, emotions, they come and they go, and sometimes you ride in this roller coaster, whoosh, up and down, all, all crazy-like. So true, lasting joy, you know, can't be found in this world apart from Christ. Right? You know, sometimes uh, someone may pass. You know, we feel sad that they're passing. But we have joy that no longer they're not suffering anymore, but they're with Christ, hopefully. They're Christian. And uh, they can live with him forever and free from pain and whatnot. <coughs> You know, uh, Pat mentioned earlier uh, Hebrews 12:2. You know, talking about Jesus's reaction to the cross. I mean, obviously a very excruciating, horrible thing that Jesus knew he had to face. But what does it say? You know, he prayed that the cup would be taken from him and so forth. The Father's will be done. He said, "For the joy set before him, the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." The joy of what was to come, or God's promise allowed Christ to, you know, endure that and go through with that. You know, uh, look at also the book of Revelation. Have you ever tried to read through the book of Revelation? The first part kind of makes sense, talking all the different churches at the time and so forth. The middle is complete insanity, you know. You've got women's on dragons. You've got people eating scrolls. It's, it's crazy if you're not, you know, looking for all the little hidden messages and so forth. But then at the end, it's crystal clear again. God triumphs in the end. Jesus conquers the devil. All is right with the world. Inter- interestingly enough, it's the most important parts that are the clearest in that revelation, what we need to do and what happens in the end. So we know all this, but what robs us of joy today? You know, one of the things that robs us of joy is, is worry. You know, we worry that you know, God won't take care of us. You know, we get distracted by things, uh, fear. We become afraid of what's going to come. You know, maybe regrets. We start regretting things we did in the past. You know, some cringy choices we made that we can't undo. Things like that. You know, so wh- how can we stay grounded uh, in this life when we know that emotions and things going to keep us going up and down in this roller coaster or whatnot? So in, in this way, joy kind of acts as an anchor because we know that God has already overcome. You know, we can face the uncertainties and troubles that knowing that God will never leave us, he won't forsake us. You know, Nehemiah 8.10b says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what gets us through everything. You know, even when times are good, 
know, and everything's going our way, we can be joyful. When times are bad, we're still joyful because we know that God has our, our best mind in for us. So I just want to close with a few, a few words from one of my, uh, my favorite songs in church, uh, Because He Lives, and I just want to focus on some of the words here. Second verse says, How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance that this child can face uncertain days because he lives. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And because I know that he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. So we're going to finish off with one last song today.